that song is called Holland Hearse. It's from the Ghastly Ones, and it appears on their album, A Haunting We Will Go-Go. It appears on Monster Kid Radio with their permission. This is episode 107 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I want to welcome you guys and gals to this week's show. I'm super excited about Monster Kid Radio this week because we have a first-timer on the show, somebody who's never been on the show before, but somebody who's been in my collection for years. Even before I fully embraced this whole Monster Kid thing, I had Carrie Gamble in my comic book collection. Turns out the guy worked on a number of Marvel comics that I read and collected and loved growing up. And it turns out he's just as big a monster fan as I am, if not more so, and I'm excited to have him on the show. So this week, we've got Cary Gamble. We're going to talk to him about his background, a little bit about his artwork, more about his monster kidness, and then we're going to talk about some Bela Lugosi movies and just talk Bela Lugosi because, darn it, we don't talk about Lugosi enough here on the show. We need more Bella. Before we get to that, why don't we go ahead and get to the business here on Monster Kid Radio. Go over to monsterkidradio.net to find links to everything that you're going to hear about here on this week's show, as well as any other show you've heard in the past. You can also find a link to our YouTube page, our Flickr album, and our Live 365 channel. Live 365 is a streaming radio station, and I've programmed the Monster Kid Radio Live 365 channel with nothing but music and sounds from monster movies from the 30s to the 60s, as well as a few movies that might remind us of that era. So go check that out. There are ads, and you can purchase a VIP pass through Live 365 to avoid the ads. If you do that, please do that through the Monster Kid radio page at Live 365. We get like a penny or two out of that. So that would certainly help us out. But if nothing else, enjoy the music. I love sharing this music with people because I'm a film score junkie. I love the music from these movies, sometimes more so than the monsters from some of them. Okay, I don't know if that's true. But I do love monster movie music. And if you guys and gals do too, check out the Live 365 page. Also, if you click on the Bands and Songs button at the website, you're going to find links to every single band that has appeared here on the show. Every one of those bands has given us permission to play their music. If you click through to their website and buy their album, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. There's also a link to our Facebook group. We have a group you can join. You can go to facebook.com slash Monster Kid Radio and like the Monster Kid Radio page. We have a decent community on Facebook. I also have a Twitter account. I don't use it as much as I probably should. But if you're a Twitter user, look for us over there at Monster Kid Radio as well. You know, we're going to go ahead and start talking to Kerry Gamble about his background, his history. Like I said, we're going to talk about his interest in monsters, how far back that goes, that sort of thing. So we're going to get to that. Then we're going to do a little bit of feedback. We're going to talk about some things coming up. And we'll close out the show by playing that song from The Ghastly One. So why am I flapping my jaws here? We'll get to that all right after this. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934. And after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Hammer, that's vodka and orange juice. This boy has a lot to learn. 
Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Wait, that's a screwdriver. 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. He's an artist, he's an illustrator, he's a publisher, he's a monster kid, he's a monster fan, he's Kerry Gamble, and he's on Monster Kid Radio this week. Welcome to the show, Kerry. Hey, Derek. Thanks for having me. So I mentioned at the very beginning of this, I mean, we're just going to get right into it. You're an artist. I mean, I know you, or at least I first knew you through your comic book work. Uh-huh. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background? I started drawing for Marvel in the late 70s. I think 78 uh, was my very first work there. I'd been a comic book reader since I was uh, like in junior high and big Marvel Comics fan. I was drawing since I was real small, so I always saw myself as an artist and you know figured that that's what I'd be doing for a living. And uh, of course, my the first thing that I really wanted to do was be Basil Gogus and draw you know paint covers for famous monsters and stuff. Wow! But but there wasn't a lot of horror stuff going on in the late seventies when I got into to comics. The big kind of horror boom in comics, at least as far as like Marvel and that kind of stuff goes, was in the earlier seventies, mid seventies, with stuff like Tomb of Dracula and and you know Marvel had several monster comics and magazines. But that all kind of had died down by the time I got into it. But I always loved superheroes, too. Uh, the Superman TV show with George Reeves was one of the f- earliest things I remember seeing, and, and you know, it was one of my favorite shows. And so I always loved superheroes, too. I didn't read a lot of comics until later, though. I remember buying a Superman comic when I was probably five years old and looking through it and being disappointed because it didn't look like the television show. Oh, no. I, I wanted to see him, you know, go into the storage room and jump out the window, you know, like he did every episode of Superman and and see the exact same things. And it was all this crazy stuff with red kryptonite and Candoria and all this weird stuff that it, they didn't do on the TV show. So I kind of shot away from Superman, but then I got into Marvel Comics and became a big superhero fan through, like, Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and that kind of thing. So that's what I gravitated toward and decided that's what I'll shoot for when I uh, make my big break into professional uh, artwork. And so I ended up drawing for Marvel for about 10 years, and then I went to D.C. and drew Superman for a few years. And, and then I kind of drifted out of that into some stuff in the movies. I went out to L.A. for a few years and did concept art uh, for a special effects place. It did like the Outer Limits TV show and Several oh, wow. movies like Species 2 and Phantoms and some Stephen King TV stuff. And so that was a dream job. I you know, got to draw a lot of aliens and monsters and things and work and stuff that ended up being on TV and movies and things. But then I got lured away from that to an advertising agency back in Dallas where I lived before. And because my family was still back in Texas, I went out to LA temporarily to work on uh, Virus, that movie with Jamie Lee Curtis. and um, mm, okay. Okay. That was they thought was going to be a big summer blockbuster, and it'll be so bad they didn't release it for two years. But <laughs> uh, but that's that's what they're this. I worked for Steve Johnson's XFX. Uh, Steve Johnson was started out as one of Rick Baker's crew when he was doing stuff like American Werewolf, and eventually got his own shop and did a lot of stuff like the Species movies, and he was doing the Outer Limits and things, and they got the job to do a lot of these robot kind of uh, mechanical. I forget what they called them, uh, but they were like half human and half machine that these aliens were building, like 
robots with human parts. So I went out there just to work on that and ended up staying there for like two years. So I was going back and forth from Texas to L.A. So anyway, this is getting long and boring. But I went back to Dallas <laughs> to, to work for a, a promo agency and drawing concept art for like kids' toys and you know kids' program stuff for several years and uh, kind of bounced around that for a while. Then I kind of missed comic books and monster stuff. So I decided uh, with a friend of mine who was also uh, kind of out of work at the time, uh, we formed Monsterverse Comics just you know so we could do cool monster comics again. So that's kind of what I've been putting my efforts into for the last few years. I grew up a comic book collector. I grew up a comic book fan. And I mean, unknowingly, before we started talking on Facebook and all that, I, I have a ton of comic books that you had worked on in my mm. comic book collection. And I worked at a comic book store at one point, and I remember those virus action figures on the wall for oh, years yeah. <laughs> because nobody bought them. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, I went and bought some at Target just to have my little – because the main thing I did in the movie was uh, Donald Sutherland. Uh, uh-huh. I, I kind of designed the character that, that they turned him into. I couldn't believe they made kids' toys for that movie anyway. It was pretty raunchy and <laughs> really gross. But, uh, yeah, I don't think they sold many of those. No, no, they didn't during my time at the comic shop. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm looking at the website over at Monsterverse, and despite all of this comic book background and working in the movies and all that, the About section about you on your website says your first published work was actually in something called the Monster Times. Yeah, it wasn't really a professional thing, but I did some cartoons, just one panel of cartoons that I oh, sent wow. to them and they published. I had a what I thought was a brilliant thing with uh, Lionel Atwell and Basil Rathbone from Son of Frankenstein, like the scene where they're playing darts and they're talking about the monster. And the picture with Basil, it was uh, Lionel Atwell sort of looking sort of shocked and angry and, and kind of in the foreground, sort of looking out at the reader in the background, Basil Rathbone is kind of nonchalantly talking and saying, I would have given my right arm to have actually seen the monster. Uh, which, you know, if you know that <laughs> Atwell had, had his arm ripped out by the monster, he didn't think it was funny. <laughs> but the Monster Times liked it and they, they printed it in there and then I sent him another one and they printed it and so that was actually the first published work I had, but it was just from sending something into a sure. little monster thing. For listeners who don't know, the Monster Times was, I think it was in the early 70s. It was kind of like a newspaper-style monster magazine. Yeah, it was uh, on the newsprint and, you know, just like a newspaper. It was a cool magazine, though, because they, they kind of cross between comics and monsters a lot. They had a lot of articles about Marvel comics and things. Yeah, it was it was a neat uh, little kind of a different approach to monster magazines at the time. The one cool thing I remember they had was the middle section. You could pull it out, and they would always print a one sheet from a movie. You know, you'd have a Godzilla movie or something. You could pull that out and hang it up on your wall, and it was pretty large when you unfolded it. I've seen back issues of it at various shows and such. I'd love to have some of the originals for myself just to kind of go through and look at it and, and try to track down some of these early cartoons of yours. I think that'd be a, a treat to see. Do you yeah. have copies of them yourself now? or? Yeah, I, I actually put both of those up on Facebook a few months ago. On the they, There's a Universal Monster group on there, and I did put them up there. So I can send those to you if you wanted to see those. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Maybe we'll put a link to that in the Facebook group so some of the listeners can check that out as well if you're okay with that. Okay. Yeah, sure. Now, you mentioned Basil Gogos 
in 2001, you were involved in a book celebrating his artwork. Yeah, that was what I feel is my biggest accomplishment as far as contributing something to the whole monster history. I would see Basil at conventions, and he always, besides the great covers he'd done years ago, he always had new stuff out there. He was doing these big charcoal drawings of monsters he would you know, do for fans and sell those and and uh, he always had a lot more of those every time I'd see him. And he had a lot of paintings that he'd done, you know, as commissions for people and stuff. And besides the famous monsters, he'd done covers for Monster Scene magazine back in the 90s. And he'd done a bunch of prints of his own for a while. So uh, I have to think there's enough stuff here for a book. And I don't know why nobody does one on him. But a friend of mine, David Spurlock, is the publisher of uh, Vanguard Productions, and he does a lot of art books, and he had done a book on me that was my comic work, and the other half was uh, like movie designs and things I'd done with the embarrassingly long title of Carrie Gamble's Drawing Monsters and Heroes for Comics and Film. Uh, <laughs> because at the time, kind of how-to books were always a good seller, and so he sort of sold the publisher on doing a book of my art kind of leaning it towards being a you know how to do it kind of thing and to which i hated but you know i said well i'm not going to pretend i can tell anyone how to do this stuff but i'll you know put my thoughts down as to you know what i was thinking when i did this or this yeah there was really just an excuse to put all my art in a book but i ended up doing a lot of the book myself because at the ad agency i'd worked for i'd learned how to use uh, there's a program called quark express that we used to make presentation decks, but it's what they used to make a lot of books and things. At least they did back then. Now they use InDesign usually. This is something that you put books together in, and you know you can insert the pictures where you want them, and you know put the text and everything. So I ended up doing a lot of the work on the the book, my art in it, and so I realized. David might be interested in doing a book on Gogas, and I could do most of the work myself, putting it together in Quark. And so I approached Basil at the convention and you know asked if he'd be interested in a book like that. He was a little resistant. I was surprised. Really? But he, uh, I think was was a, a, a little afraid about the legal ramifications, you know, because you're dealing not only with with the James Warren art from years ago, but all of it. You know, a lot of the great stuff that he did was based on Universal Monsters and Universal, you know, was very protective of that stuff. So there were a lot of kind of hoops we had to jump through and make sure legally we were okay with everything and uh, indemnify Basil, you know, of of any kind of legal problems and stuff. So he was kind of, you know, dragging his feet through most of the thing. But when it all came together, he was very happy with it and very proud of it. You know, I was just thrilled to be able to put together a book like that, you know, just so I can hold it in my hand and see all of his art in one place like that. Yeah, to have it all collected in one edition would be amazing. I mean, his artwork, yeah. the, the covers that he did for Famous Monsters, those are iconic images. A lot of times when I think about these old monster movies, these these classic monster movies, his artwork is what I think of first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just had this power to it. He was, you know, very polished professional, you know, advertising type artist, but... When they gave him these monster assignments, he just threw himself into them and, and did kind of, you know, neat experimental, loose, wild stuff. And, and James Warren, you know, had a really good graphic sense and everything. He would present these things in, you know, really cool ways. And, you know, they just really grabbed me even as a little kid. You know, I couldn't articulate what it was that I liked about him, but I just knew it was really cool. And it was just quality stuff. 
And you look at other monster magazines, you know, and, you know, the stuff would look like it was, you know, done by fans or something or people that didn't care what they were doing. But Basil just, you know, I mean, he's really a fine artist at heart and he just loves painting and color and things. And so, you know, he just approached the monster just like he would any other subject, you know, and just, just put all the passion he could into it. And just the colors, of course, were his oh. signature, you know, because he would do these weird things like it was lit from four or five angles with colored lights and stuff and just always somehow made sense and just made those things jump off the page. I mean, his use of color and the the lighting effects, I guess that's the best way you could put it. I mean, they look like Mm -hmm. they're lit in a way that never occurred in the film, but boy, they should have been lit that way because they look gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, they were just really cool. Yeah, those and and those James Bama paintings that were on the Aurora model kits were just so ingrained and anyone that grew up during that period... You know, just had those two amazing artists doing those monster things that uh, really added to the whole experience of that uh, monster boom stuff in the 60s. And, and you were a part of that. I mean, you were like in there. Did you have models growing up, that sort of thing? <laughs> yeah, I, I've always been very grateful for growing up in exactly the time period that I did. I was born in the mid-50s, and so in the 60s, when all of the monster stuff was the rage, you know, I was just the right age for it. And I actually got the Frankenstein and Wolfman model kits uh, for Christmas on, I guess it was probably 1963. Uh, and I hadn't even seen these yet, but I had heard from somebody else that there were these model kits of monsters you could get. And so we told our parents, you know, that's what we wanted in Christmas morning. It was so cool to see all the stuff in the tree. And there was this Frankenstein and Wolfman boxes that, you oh. know, we, we'd never even seen them before. And, and, of course, we had every one after that. And that was just a big part of all that. Awesome. So you've been a fan. You've been an, an artist. You've always been drawn to the artwork side of things. I mean, even before launching MonsterVerse. If you go online and type up monsterkid.com, you're going to find some online magazines that you were the driving force behind, weren't you? I started that when I was working at one of these ad agencies, and you know the internet was pretty new. And I signed on with some company, you know, for internet service. That as part of the deal, they just gave you, you know, a free website, and they had these tools, you know, for building websites online. You didn't have to have software to do it. And I was just looking through there. One of the templates they had was a magazine. So I thought, well, I'll just make my own monster magazine, you know, for a website. And I'd had a, like, mock-up for a a cover that I'd done called Monster Kid Magazine because I was part of this AOL group that what eventually grew into the classic horror film board that's on the Internet now – uh, started on AOL as a discussion group that David Colton started, who David uh, is an editor at USA Today, and he was one of the original what we now call Monster Kids because he coined the term Monster Kid. Uh, he wrote this cool essay that he's posted one year at Halloween, just kind of trying to capture the essence of what it was to be a kid back then when these monsters were everywhere and, and you know how you kind of lived your life around these things and the Saturday night you know, shock theater show and, you know, all the toys and things. And and then he said, you know, that was back when we were the monster kids. And just everybody latched on to that term, and it just started being what we all called ourselves. So I did this magazine cover called Monster Kid that I just did just as a graphic. And then I thought, well, I could just actually make that the cover of my magazine for my website. And so it just kind of started out as something to do in my spare time, just having fun with it and playing with the graphics and things. 
and then I ended up, you know, doing several more issues of it after that. And I haven't been able to get back to it in a long time. It's it's on my list of things that I'm trying to get back to. So I haven't updated it in several years. But I did like I guess maybe seven issues of it. Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at issue number seven right now over uh, at MonsterKid.com, and I'll, and I'll have to admit, and my apologies to any of my coworkers who might be listening, I spent a lot of time <laughs> at MonsterKid.com <laughs> going through these issues when I should be working. So <laughs> yes, that's the way we all are these days. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and it's good stuff. I mean, it, it's yeah. obvious that you had a love for these monsters that you've just taken with you through your entire career, and eventually that led to MonsterVerse, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. MonsterVerse, it's a comic publisher. Is it primarily comic books? Yeah, the idea originally was that uh, I just wanted to draw some monster stories because I always felt like I missed out. In my comics career, I drew all superhero stuff. You know, I did Spider-Man and the X-Men and Fantastic Four and Captain America and Superman. And I did one little three-page story for Elvira's House of Mystery that was uh, actually done for another publication that ended up going out of business. And so I pitched it to DC. The situation was they had a comic called House of Mystery that was, you know, horror stories. So... They brought it back just to uh, actually sort of burn through some inventory they had. So they made it, they put Elvira on it, called it Elvira's House of Mystery. But they weren't really doing new stuff for it. They just had a lot of backlog that they hadn't printed yet from their old House of Mystery comic. But I sent them that and they said, well, it's only three pages. So, and you know, it's really a neat little story. So we'll go ahead and buy it from you. And which is funny because I, since I'd written it and drawn it, you know, I did the pencils and inks on it. They had a policy at DC that you could not write and draw something unless you were an employee of of DC Comics. So huh. they had to make me an employee of the company for three days instead of a freelancer, <laughs> so that they could print the comic book or the, the story. Uh, since I'd done all the work on it myself, but that was the only thing that I had done that was that was a hard thing. So I always felt like. You know, I, I didn't didn't get that out of my system. And the first comics I ever read, actually, besides, like I say, getting a Superman or two when I was very small, were uh, Warren's comics, Creepy Magazine and Eerie, which started in like 64. I remember seeing the advertisements in Famous Monsters, but I didn't realize what it was. You know, they just printed a few panels, and I thought, are these supposed to be jokes or something? I thought maybe, you know, we were supposed to get you know, some oh, sort of joke out of okay. this this picture of this. Well, I remember there was a shot of a woman with a shrunken head on her body, and you know she was like calling her husband's name. And you know, in the story, it made sense, but just seeing it in this ad, I thought, well, what is that supposed to mean? You know, I don't get it. But my brother, who was two years older than me, you know, he was a big monster fan too at the time. He somehow lost the faith over the years, and. Uh, <laughs> So he thinks I'm kind of crazy for still loving the monster things. But back then when we were kids, we were both into all this stuff. So one day this thing came in the mail, and I didn't realize that he had sent away for it. We used to order a lot of stuff from Captain Company, and you know we'd get back issues of Famous Monsters and order the records and home movies and toys and stuff that they'd sell in the back. So he had ordered creepy number one and when it came in the mail you know i was like i didn't know we were getting this but when i read through it you know i thought oh this is really cool i didn't know what to expect but it was based you know on the idea of the old ec comics tales from the crypt and stuff like that which of course i wasn't aware of for a few years later but it was these little short you know stories with a twist ending at the end kind of twilight zone you know alfred hitchcock kind of thing 
which had a host. You know, they had Uncle Creepy introducing the stories, and he'd make some funny comment at the end. And it was just a neat format, and they had all these great artists that I didn't recognize at the time. But, you know, it's one of those things I said about growing up when I did. You know, you had Frank Frazetta doing the covers, and you know, people like Al Williamson and Angelo Torres and Jack Davis and Wally Wood and uh, Reed Crandall, Gene Colan, and Steve Ditko. I'd never seen him before. You know, I hadn't read Spider-Man yet. All these people doing art. Archie Goodman was the editor and wrote most of the stories, and he just had a feel for these things. And it just all, you know, worked really perfect. And, and so if you're a fan of, of horror stuff, those creepy things at that time were just, just really incredible. So that was sort of our inspiration you know, I thought I'd love to have done something like that. When I, I got to a point where I kind of slowed down on the work I was doing for these agencies because it just was, you know, hard to keep doing that kind of stuff. That because you you draw so many things that never go anywhere. You know, it's all the main purpose yeah. of their concept artist was to draw all these ideas up that the salesman could go in and pitch, and then you know, once in a blue moon, something would actually you know get done. So it was sort of you know something that was hard to keep your your heart into. So I thought I'd like to do comics again, but I want to do something that I own and something that uh, you know is interesting to me. And I always loved that format of the short horror stories, you know, and multiple stories in one magazine, and then having a host for them. And of course, being a horror movie fan, I thought it would be so cool if you had like Bela Lugosi hosting these stories. It would be sort of his version of Thriller that Karloff had on television. So I picture, you know, if, if somehow there had been a show in the mid-50s or something like Thriller, but with Bela Lugosi hosting it, it would be the creepiest thing. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and it would have been so cool for Bela, who, of course, by the you know mid-50s was, you know, pretty much forgotten, you know, by everybody but Ed Wood. And so I thought, well, this would be my chance to sort of give – Bela Lugosi, you know, something, you know, give him a little showcase and, and uh, try to capture as much of his personality as possible uh, and make him the host of this comic and and I can draw all these cool monster things. But what I didn't realize is how much work it is to do a comic like that, be the publisher and editor and, and have to supervise everything that's done on the comic and all the stories. So, uh, you know, I've ended up in the last, we've done like four issues these so far, and I've only drawn one complete story. I always draw a few pages in each comic, usually the Bela Lugosi stuff, and I wrote one story, but most of the work is like just putting it all together and, and sort of uh, being the editor and publisher and doing all the business stuff. So it's taken up more of my time than than I had hoped it would, you know, so I, I need to get down to drawing more of it. When I look at the magazine or the comic, it's called Tales from the Grave. And, I mean, the first issue, it's obvious. You know, it's a Bela Lugosi-presented story like the old comics, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. What was the experience like getting the Lugosi family on board with this project? Because I'm assuming you had to get their permission. Oh, yeah. We work with the Lugosi family very closely on it. I'd been dealing with Bela Jr. several years before that on some uh, DVD projects. He had a partner at the time. They were planning to do a series of DVDs called Bela Lugosi Presents, and they were going to you know, repackage all the public domain stuff, mostly the monogram films and things. Oh. Bela Jr. was doing introductions to them, and they were going to have a lot of extras like interviews and home movies and things like that. 
but somehow it, it sort of fizzled after a couple of, of DVDs that put commentaries on it, which is pretty cool. They both have, I think it's uh, Ted Newsom and Bela Jr. Oh, okay. So that's giving, what those were. Okay. I, right. I think I know what you're – like the Devil Bat was one of them. Right. They did Devil Bat and uh, Bowery at Midnight. But one of the commentaries, it's sort of notorious. Bela Jr. is sort of a man of few words. You know, he it's not at all like his dad as far as his personality. You know, you picture Bela Sr. as being very showman-like and extroverted. And, you know, he loved to be the center of attention and, you know, was a performer, you know, all the time. Bela Jr. is very soft-spoken, and it's hard to, you know, get him to speak in you know sentences of more than a few words you know he gives such direct simple answers to things that they're the uh, commentary is basically ted newsome interviewing bailey jr during the movies and they, of course they don't talk a whole lot about the history of the movies because bailey jr was a kid at the time he didn't know anything about the movie so he, they're sort of sure. finding general things to talk about and about two-thirds of the way through the movie they just stop talking, and so oh, no. the commentary just ends, you know, way before the movie does. But anyway, <laughs> but I did the graphics for those. I did the the packaging because I saw Bela at a convention and and knew one of the other people involved in it, and they asked me if I wanted to to do the package art. So, being like I said, working in in advertising for a long time, I had picked up a lot of production skills or doing. Uh, that kind of thing. And I like doing graphic design, too. You know, art drawing is a lot of hard work. Sometimes, you know, it's just less tiring to, to just do graphic art for a while. And so just putting together, you know, the photos and the lettering and all that. So I had designed those. And we talked back at that time about comic books. It was something that Bela and, and his partner at the time were wanting to do. But they had in mind stuff like graphic novels and things. They the One project they want to do, that which we're working on, making happen we haven't actually started physically working on it but it's always been in the plan is to do a uh, graphic novel of dracula based on the stoker novel but using lugosi's image as dracula oh, wow so that's something that's never been done before you know putting the universal actor together with the stoker novel because oh. the movie of course for people that might not know was based on the broadway play or it started in england actually and then came to broadway but it's a stage play that's you know loosely based on Dracula, but it's you know this mainly sort of a drawing room drama, you know, and, and not very much at all like Stoker's novel. But that's people's image of Dracula when they first think of it is is you know the tuxedo and the cape and the Lugosi uh, kind of look. Well, sign me up for that. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, we're hoping to get that started pretty soon. So that was one idea that Bela had, and I had asked him about the idea of maybe doing a. A thing with multiple stories and and having his dad just host the comic, and somehow he, he didn't quite picture that. I guess you know, not being someone that it was ever in the comic books and things, he just didn't really understand what we were going for. So that didn't really go anywhere at the time. We talked quite a bit about the Dracula graphic novel, but it just financially, it didn't didn't make a lot of sense to put that much work into it for the amount of money that would be paid to the artist and writer. So later, though, when I was looking, you know, to, to start my own little comics business, uh, I approached Bela again about that idea of doing the the horror stories with Bela, you know, hosting the book. So we talked about that and eventually uh, came to an agreement for that thing. And now they're very happy with it. And but of course, we we do license the name and and likeness from the family, and they you know have to approve everything that we do. So we work very closely with Bela, and, and Bela's junior's daughter, Lynn, 
is uh, very involved in the Lagosi Enterprises business, so we deal with her a lot. And How many issues have there been so far? There have only been four that have been out. We have a lot of material for the next ones that uh, will be starting up very quickly. I, there's, I can't really announce the details yet. We've been on hold for quite a while, sort of waiting for this other thing to to come together, and it's all set now to, uh, to get started. So I feel a little funny because I can't say anything specific, but I just say look for an announcement very soon about the future of Bela Lugosi's Tales from the Grave. We'll be uh, telling the world as soon as we can, but right now all I can say is that we will be returning, and it'll be bigger and better than ever. So for listeners, head over to monsterverse.com. I'm assuming that's where all the news about this is. We'll be posting. Right, right. we'll post it there, or we have the Facebook page for uh, MonsterVerse. Also over at MonsterVerse.com, you're going to see the other projects that MonsterVerse is involved with. Flesh and Blood is also another book that I really like. Now, is that one that you sought out, or they came to you, the creators of that came to you? I think we just saw you know, some of the images of the thing they were doing and, and approached them about it. But I've known Robert Tunnell for a long time. I never actually met Neil Vokes, but I, you know, been following the stuff that him and Bob have done together. They did a books in the past uh, called uh, "The Black Forest" and "The Wicked West," and uh, they've done some other horror, horror stuff together. I've always liked the stuff they've done, and this uh, "Flesh and Blood," you know, I think it's the best thing they've ever done. Uh, it's uh, a cool sort of mashup of classic monster things, but done like from the literary sources you know it's got dr frankenstein and count dracula and uh, mr hyde's been in there and carmilla the vampire is in there so it's it's putting all this stuff together kind of like universal did in the 40s when they're you know the house of frankenstein the house of dracula where they put all the monsters together and it has a very hammer horror vibe to it with the period and you know the costumes even some of the characters resemble the hammer versions but it's this really cool epic story with with all these characters intermingling like that, and it's it's a book size book. Each the story, the book itself, I think is about like 112 pages, and about 80 pages right. is the main story. And then they have a backup story called uh, Operation Satan. That's really cool. It's you know they <laughs> run like six pages uh, each issue, and, and it's in black and white, and it's sort of like a Quatermass movie kind of thing, you know, sort of a sci-fi horror. And then we have some articles and and uh, another backup story that uh, the, the character that Bob created called Terry Sharp, he's a movie director. He directs horror movies, but he also has these like horror adventures in real life. And it's sort of, I think Terry Sharp is a blend of Terrence Fisher and Don Sharp oh. that, that worked back in the 60s. And so I think he, that's where he got the name. So there's a backup story in there that's that's supposed to be like one of his movies or something. It's a Frankenstein thing. So it, it's, a, it's a great package that we put together every issue. And we've, there's been three out so far, and then there, the fourth one will be the, the last one. It's been a you know planned as a four graphic novel series, and they each sort of you know tell a, uh, their own story. But when you put them all together, it makes one big long thing. That's very cool. I mean. Listeners, I, I cannot recommend Flesh and Blood enough. I'm a big fan of that book, and I'm eager for more Tales from the Grave, so I'm excited to hear that there's more of that coming down the line as well. well. Great. Now, if you want more Carrie Gamble, stay tuned. In part two, 
here in a couple of days. We're going to have him back on, and we're going to continue that conversation. We're going to talk about Bela Lugosi specifically, talk about some of his favorite Lugosi movies and moments, that sort of thing. But if you want more Cary Gamble right now, well, check this out. He posted on the Facebook page a response to episode 105 of Monster Kid Radio, which was last week. 105 was part one of our Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man coverage with Joe Stuber. This is what Cary said. I'm enjoying the episode right now. About the invisible Franz undressing and not having underwear, I'm sure it was just to make the undressing more streamlined and less awkward. The scene of Claude Rains undressing in the original was done the same way. Either both Rains and Franz's characters were both going commando, or somehow the invisibility formula works on underpants too. You know, and we didn't really address this too much when we had Joe on the show to talk about this movie. If the character was wearing underwear, we wouldn't have been able to see completely through the invisible man as he's taking his pants off. The effects are so good in these Invisible Man movies. And thinking specifically of Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man, there's one shot where he's taking off the pants, going completely invisible. Yes, he's going commando, but you can see through his body to the inside of his pants on the back. I don't know if I'm describing it clearly, but it's pretty fascinating and amazing to watch and to see that that technology existed then and existed so well. Although... Something that was brought up on another podcast, the Castle of Horror podcast, did make me cringe just a little bit. And that's the idea of the Invisible Man in the first film also being completely nude while he's invisible and riding a bicycle. I don't know if riding a bicycle is something that I put at the top of my list of things that I'd want to do naked. But yeah, speaking of them, the Castle of Horror podcast, excellent show. And they just covered the Invisible Man, the original one themselves so go check that out and again let them know monster kid radio sent you okay some events that are coming up first monster bash is coming ladies and gentlemen i am going to monster bash thanks to a mysterious benefactor i'm going to be hopping on a plane and i'm going to be going to mars pennsylvania for monster bash weekend june 20th 21st and 22nd i'm going to be getting there probably early afternoon friday june 20th not exactly sure i have some things happening in town beforehand I'm going to try to get to the bash as quickly as I can because I don't want to miss out. But yeah, I'm going to be getting there Friday afternoon and then Saturday and Sunday all day. I'm going to be there. Scott Morris and Tracy Morris, previous guests here on Monster Kid Radio, they're going to be there. And I was just talking to another previous guest from Monster Kid Radio. I don't want to say who it is because it's not a done deal, but he's saying he might be there. Christopher R. Mim is going to be a vendor, so he's going to be there. Vince, Mary, Nick, Juan from the B-Movie cast, they're all going to be, I mean, this is just going to be a treat. Oh, yeah. And somebody named Julie Adams will be there, too. This is going to be so much fun. I've been looking forward to Monster Bash for years. I've always wanted to go. I've watched the videos. I've heard Vince's stories on the B-Movie cast. I cannot wait. If anybody's going to be at Monster Bash, I would love to meet you. I'm going to be hard to miss. I'll be the big guy wearing the Hawaiian shirt who looks like he's having the most fun in the room. And I'll have my recorder with me. I'm going to try to record as much as I can for future episodes of Monster Kid Radio. So if you can't go, well, keep listening. You'll get to hear the show and hear about it. And hopefully it'll be like you were there. The weekend after I get back in the Portland, Oregon area, in Tigard, Oregon specifically, the Joy Cinema is showing Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D. Monster Kid Radio is going to crash the movie Saturday night, the 28th of June. Showtimes have not been announced yet, so I can't tell you what the showtimes will be, but whatever the evening show is, I'm going to be there. And I know a number of other folks are going to be there because they said so on the event page over on Facebook. If you're a Facebook user, just look up Monster Kid Radio Crashes. 
Creature from the Black Lagoon, happening June 28th. If you're going to be there, let me know. I'd love to meet you. Again, Hawaiian shirt, looking like I'm having fun. Recorder in hand, hard to miss. I want to thank Carrie Gamble for taking some time to appear on Monster Kid Radio. You know, because I'm in the Pacific Northwest, I have a time zone difference with a lot of people that have been on the show. So, Carrie, thank you so much for working with me and appearing on the podcast this week. Again, here in a couple of days, he's going to be back. We're going to talk about Bella Lugosi. Also, big thanks to the Ghastly Ones for letting me play their music here on the show. Norman from the Ghastly Ones asked me to let listeners know he has a new band now called Boss Fink. Facebook.com Boss Fink. He's where you can find them. Go check them out. You know, when you're not checking out the Ghastly Ones or Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Again, that does not apply to the song Hall and Hearse. That belongs to the Ghastly Ones. It appears on their album, A Haunting We Will Go Go. I will talk to everybody here in a couple of days.